You want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, the podcast where prominent figures in sports talk about how sport has impacted the journey of their lives. Philly special. Ready? everybody to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, episode 31. Today's guest is CFL on TSN analyst and draft analyst of the CFL, Dwayne Ford. Dwayne, thanks so much for joining today's episode. I'm super excited to talk CFL football with you. It's my pleasure. It's been too long, I think, for a lot of us since we've talked Canadian football. So we've seen a lot of stuff in the news recently about some of the free agent signings that have been made and a lot of the issues that may come up with the salary and a lot of GMs reaching for the floor, maybe instead of the ceiling. We saw Zach Evans just recently got released with a bit of a, a, a contract issue in terms of money. But how do you think that free agency will affect the prospects who are hoping to be taken in 2021? Because with having had no season for some players, it's going to be really difficult for them to show their stuff. Yeah, it is. And I think the the biggest issue is not so much with established free agents that are already in the league, but the the challenge that you're going to see in the CFL is essentially having two rookie classes, two draft classes coming into the league at at the same time. So this is what's led to some of the rules for the 2021 draft, primarily the the number of rounds um, being reduced so that there are a couple less players in this 2021 draft class. Um, You know, guys having the option to, to opt out of the draft based on really nobody using any intercollegiate eligibility, whether you're talking about guys in the NCAA or guys playing U sports football right now, but just trying to manage those numbers in terms of, um, you know, the number of rookies, Canadian rookies in particular coming in at the same time and, and competing for the same job. So I don't think that that free agency will, will impact it nearly as much as just the, the double cohort in terms of the draft. And, I, and from conversations I've had with some youth sports coaches, they've talked about dealing with that issue at the same level within their programs. Coach Dobie had told me about, okay, now we got guys for 2020 and 2021 coming in at the same time. So how do you make sure that there's a limit, right? Because obviously with CFL teams, you can bring in lots more players to training camp and you cut guys. But in youth sports, you're not really looking to make that big of a splash in terms of bringing 100 plus guys into a roster, maybe with a few exceptions in, in the OUA or other conferences that are a lot more rigorous in terms of their competitive uh, selection process, but how much of an issue do you think this may affect youth sports programs for the 2021 season? Well, I think it's something that's going to be fascinating to watch, not, not just in the 2021 season, but, but really for about the next four, maybe even five years because of the the way that this log jam has been created. And again, the, the same thing applies to the CFL that as much as, it would be nice to think that sort of, you know, when the pandemic gets under control and and things like that and, and the rules go back to normal, that everything's going to go back to normal. But but it's not necessarily the case, because what you're going to have is all of these guys who have, for all intents and purposes, an extra year of eligibility, it's going to create a backlog. Right. So that guys who are coming back for their their fifth year, that assuming a certain number of those guys are, are going to remain and and still play their fifth year now in, in 2021, instead of 2020, um, that's going to cause on the other end, as you alluded to, it's going to cause guys coming in to redshirt. Well, now those guys, when they get to years, you know, basically year four, you usually anticipate some of your top recruits 
um, moving on via the draft after their fourth year. Well, a lot of those guys will still have eligibility left. And, and so you're going to have some of those guys now sticking around. And so basically until all of the guys that are, are in the system with this extra year of eligibility for, for lack of a better way to explain it, as long as those guys are in the system for the next four or five years, you're going to see an impact on, on the guys coming in. So it, it's going to be really a really interesting time, I think, for, for the next few recruiting classes. And I thought that it was a really interesting issue that had been brought up because the obvious sentiment would be, okay, they can't control a global health crisis, so we're going to give them the next year. And initially they said, no, and then everyone had back, everyone, you know, lashed out and said, no, we're, we're going to take it to court and all these things. And then they said, okay, fine. But I still had questions in my mind related to what that would mean, like you mentioned, for the guys who weren't, were, go, were not going to go into their, uh, into their fifth year, but their fourth year, because those guys mm-hmm. don't get the extra year when they're 25. They still get a year older. So there's going to be, you're right, a backlog of players that don't get the benefit of the extra year, but have to kind of play catch up. And assumingly so, they have to compress maybe the abilities that they were looking to gain over two years into one in order for them to have relatively similar draft stock. So in, in terms of how this now affects the quality of the 2021 draft class, do you think that they won't stand as much of a chance against the guys from 2020 who at least had had the opportunity to play college before being selected? Uh, I, I don't think there's necessarily as much of that. Um, you know, I, I think that all of these guys, when you look at, at the guys that would be in this 2021 draft class, typically, yeah, you have guys that have played a reasonable amount for, for two, in some cases, maybe even three years. And, and you hope that guys are doing things to, to improve themselves during this year off. Yeah, it, it is a factor when you consider that, especially in U-Sports U football, a season really isn't that long. It's not really that many games. And so to, to lose one year is a, civic, is a significant amount of, um, of game experience. But you hope that, that kind of with the time off that people are able to, to find ways to adapt and, and make up for that. I mean, even I go back to the, the 2020 draft and it was very different for scouts, very different for prospects because of the lack of combines. And so everybody had to adapt and, and find ways. Guys had to find different ways to train, had to find different ways to, to showcase their, their talents, their abilities, different ways to, for them to be evaluated. And also scouts had to find different ways to evaluate them. And so I, I hope that players in the 2021 class in particular are kind of using this time to find different ways to make themselves better players, whether it means putting in a little more time on the mental side of the game in the film room and so on. Maybe it means because you're talking about smaller groups and so on in terms of any, any kind of practice session that you may have, it may be really refining your technique, working with your, your position coach and things like that to try and refine those things to try to make up for that, that lost game experience. And even just, at the bare bones, forget about the global uh, the global pandemic, but when you think about preparing for the draft in general, it's a bit of a daunting task in terms of what pressure it brings to the outlook of your professional career, guys who are trying to line up graduating from a program at university while they don't limit their football opportunities. If you reflect back on your experiences having graduated from University of Western Ontario and being taken in the first round, sixth overall by the Stamps in 1991, what were some of the things that you had to deal with in terms of the pressure of being drafted, but while also trying to balance your academics and making sure that you were able to succeed in all facets? 
Yeah, and I would say it was a little bit of a of a different time then because it, it was almost like not as much emphasis was was put on the combine in a lot of ways. Um, and not to say that that you didn't train hard for it and things like that, but I think that guys now are are much more committed, much more aware of you know of things like training year round. For example, back then we didn't necessarily lift a lot during the season to, to sort of maintain strength. So it was almost like the combine came up early in the off season and you weren't necessarily in your best shape. And so I think guys are a lot more aware of, of something like that. Now, um, you know, guys do a lot more specific training for the combine. We'll go out and work with trainers and, and things like that. Strength and conditioning coaches weren't part of the equation at, at Canadian universities at that time either. And, and so, um, you know, I, I would say that maybe we were we were living in the dark a little bit more in terms of some of that, um, where, yes, we were training and preparing, but it wasn't necessarily the same time commitment or, or same awareness, I would say, that that guys have now in terms of um, in terms of having to get ready. But it, it is a pressure finding a balance, making sure that especially if you're you're really talking about stepping up your training to get ready for the combine, that it, it is going to be a, an additional time commitment to what your, your strength and conditioning commitments would be otherwise during the off season of, um, of a U sports year of a Canadian university calendar year. So it's, it's tough for those guys for sure. But um, you know, I know guys, as I said, last year, guys did a very good job of, of kind of finding ways to, to work around it. And I'm sure this 2021 class will benefit from some of the things that they saw last year and, and come up with some of their own innovations as well. And the time off that guys get from being in football and being in that environment, it slows everything down. While many people have been have had their lives slowed down as a result of, of what's happened this year, from having talked with guys who played last year but then didn't get to play this year, it almost seems like there is an opportunity in terms of mental preparation or physical preparation because now you get the opportunity and the time to be able to to kind of take some risks, maybe not do something obviously belligerent, but you get to, to really experiment with trying to understand your psyche more. And, and what do you think some of the elements will be that players can now take advantage of with not having to worry about being banged up uh, towards the end of the year and being able to really manage their load in terms of working out uh, mental training and just being able to relax and, and be out of football? Yeah, I think the the level of of consistency that it provides for for training, as you said, um, guys aren't dealing with with injuries at the end of the year. You know, usually you may take a couple of weeks off at the end of the season to to try to recover. I think that that's that's kind of a double edged sword because I think that on one hand, guys will be able to sort of work through. They don't necessarily need the same break, but you also want to be aware that usually in a, a training year, you're going to, you're going to kind of cycle your training depending on what stage of, of the year it is, what stage of your preparation and so on. And so you want to make sure that guys aren't overdoing it as well, because there has, has been no season to kind of signal, okay, here's the time to, to cut back a little bit on the lifting or cut back a little bit on the speed work that, um, you know, you want to make sure that guys are still taking the, the appropriate time to recover and still kind of having those points in their cycle where the, the volume of training is a little higher and, and on the other side of it, a little bit lower. And it is interesting that there is an advantage to this, but obviously with not playing football or not really being in that scenario where you're getting game experience, that is a, a drawback. So 
When you reflect on your playing experience, did you find that there was a lot of challenges and obstacles you had to, to overcome mentally related to balancing your school and balancing uh, thinking about the draft? Because like you mentioned, it wasn't maybe as intense in terms of year-round training. And obviously the game has evolved since, but what did you have to explore? What did you go through in terms of looking for an opportunity to be drafted versus trying to figure out what your life would look like if you weren't? Because it's not like the NFL where if you make it, you can acquire generational wealth because in the CFL, that's not really the case, even if you're number one overall. Yeah, and it, it depends on obviously what guys – other aspirations are outside of football. Um, for me, I wanted to go to teacher's college, but you know, I was finishing my, my degree in, in 91, but I was in a position where I, I had a reasonable idea that I was, was going to be drafted fairly high in, in that draft, but it's, it's making that decision that, okay, well, I'm, I'm not going to bother applying to teacher's college this year and, and basically cover my bases. Yeah. There's, there is the risk that even if I get drafted, that I don't make the team, that I end up going back to school for my for my fifth year to play the last year of, of eligibility and so on. And you know, on one hand, you're you're thinking about planning your your academic future, but at the same time, um, yeah, putting as many eggs in in the football basket as you can, I suppose. And so, yeah, that that's part of it is kind of very much planning planning on two tracks, but mentally you're trying not to plan for failure. You don't want to think like you're planning for failure, right? You're, you're planning to go and, and make the team, put yourself in the best position to make the team. So it, it's kind of like, you don't want to put too much, uh, too much thought into plan B. And, and the, I, I've heard people use a quotation, you know, that they hate plan B. And I remember seeing a video of Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about how much he hates plan B because people are scared and they use it as a, as a safety net. So you, you double teachers college and, and my older brother is a, is a teacher, uh, as a high school teacher, and he was talking about the, the enjoyment he gets out of the, the routine, right? The security that exists within a job, like being a school teacher. Whereas in football, it has a structured routine, but it has probably some of the least security, job security that you can ever have for any profession in, 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 in the world, basically, because yeah. you could be cut the next day for arbitrary reasons and you never know when you can play again. So as you navigated through your CFL career, did you find that it got way easier to, to, to kind of temper the waters and make sure that you knew that you didn't have to worry about plan B as much or how did, how did you manage those ongoing thoughts? Cause obviously, you know, you, you played for what would be seen as a long amount of time if you played for more than three years, which is the average in the league, but you were able to last through a long career. How did you do that in terms of not worrying about plan B, but also understanding as time went on that it was going to become a more realistic thing to worry about. Yeah. And I would say that um, particularly as you become more of a veteran player, you, you're usually aware of your, your situation, right? So this is something where as a rookie, you kind of, you kind of go in blind. You don't really know where you stand. You don't know really how good your chances are or aren't of, of making the team. But I would say as a veteran guy, I know for me, I usually had a level of awareness of, of where I stood in terms of, uh, in terms of a spot on the roster and, and maybe how prepared I needed to be to do something else. As I said, I mean, obviously education was always something that was important to me. My father was a, a high school principal. And so it was kind of a given that, that we were going to go to university. We were going to be educated and put ourselves in the best possible position to be employed and not be, 
you know, I wasn't a guy who was going to play football because I had to. I was a guy that was going to play football because I wanted to and and had the opportunity to do so. And, you know, I mean, to, to put it in perspective, I guess, for me, um, when my career essentially ended, I was I was ready for that. And a, a story I've told a few times is um, after my 12th year in the CFL, I had played my last couple of years for Hamilton and Ron Lancaster was was our head coach. And so I got a phone call from from Ron. I think it was December. So about a month after after the end of the 2002 season. And he was calling to let me know that they weren't going to pick up the option here in my contract. 2003 would have been the, the option. So essentially saying, you know, we're we're going to let you go. You're you're going to be a free agent. We're not renewing your contract. And quite honestly, at the time he called me, I still remember to this day, I was sitting on my bed in my bedroom and I had two stacks of paper, one on, on either side of me on the bed. And one of them was papers for teacher's college ap- applications. And I went to teacher's college in the States and it was starting in January. So a month later, and on the other side of me were a stack of papers um, to purchase some equipment for a personal training business. I had always worked as a personal trainer in the off season. My degree is in, in physical education, kinesiology. And um, so that had always been my off season job. And I, you know, I was always interested in kind of the strength and conditioning thing and, and sports specific training and, and working with af- athletes. And so I was kind of thinking about that. So I kind of realized that at that time that I was at the end. And so that year, more than any other year, I was, I was prepared to move on and do other things. And in those scenarios, especially as a veteran with any of the CFL veterans I've talked to, they can kind of tell when the writing is on the wall and you can kind of get to see, okay, I'm getting towards the end. You know, they want to bring in younger guys. They want to save the contract. So what can I do to position myself? So I can pivot to the next profession without having to worry about being left for dead. Because if you talk to having played 12 years in the CFL, you talk to any of your old teammates who played for as long as you did. One of the things that you'll realize as a trend is that guys usually don't leave on their own terms and that most guys still believe that there is the ability to play in them. And it's, it's hard to kind of let go of that right away or to drop it and say, okay, now I'm going to go to teacher's college. All good. No worries, Ron. Thanks for letting me know. People are like, no, like I could still play. Or you watch on TV. You're like, man, like, look at that guy blew his assignment. Like I could probably, I could probably could have done that. And it is a difficult, I think it is a difficult transition in athletes careers, like even just outside of football. So did you, did you feel that there was moments that you were able to reach out or that you saw maybe some of that in your teammates and, or, or you were able to help them with, uh, hey, you know, like it's 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 going to be okay. Or how did you how did you rally around your teammates who are maybe going through a similar experience, or or how did you come to terms with the situation that was going to be presented for yourself with knowing that you had already played over ten years? Yeah, and as I said, I mean, for for me, um, I was fortunate because you you definitely do see guys who are who are kind of trying to hang on, right? And you you see it in 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 every sport really when when players are hanging on past their prime or guys, some guys maybe change their roles a little bit. You think sometimes of uh, say in a sport like hockey, where you see a guy who has been a star player, first line center for a number of his, for most of his career. And then at the end of his career kind of becomes a, a third or fourth liner, sort of a role player, a little more of a specialist who's, who's there to be a, a veteran presence and guys are able to, to adapt and, and do different things. Um, for me, you know, one of the, the things that I, I honestly felt in terms of 
why I was ready. Um, I, you know, I think there may have been opportunities to, to play another year or play another two years, but I didn't want to be something different. And one of the things that I always felt was in, in year 12, even just the feeling that physically I couldn't do some of the things that I could do in year 10 or couldn't do, do them as easily as I could have done them in year 10, that for me, that, that made me ready to go because I, I wasn't comfortable performing as less of a player. I wasn't comfortable feeling like, like I was hanging on. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily know a, a lot of, a lot of my teammates that, that did that, that sort of really tried to hang on past their prime and, you know, maybe needed to, to have that conversation. I think that, um, you know, having played most of my career in, in Calgary, especially we were a team that had, had a lot of continuity. And so a lot of the guys I would say were, had good long careers with a, a core group of guys had experienced success. And, and I think were for the most part satisfied with, with where they were when it was, when it was time to move on. And with having played in Calgary during a time that the franchise really turned its success around for CFL fans out there like myself, who wouldn't be older than 30 before the nineties, the St. Peters were not the, the indestructible force that they are now or have been in, in the last two decades. And, 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 and speaking of Calgary during that time, you played on two great cup teams that had different quarterbacks that were significant faces in the NFL with having played it. Doug Flutie, 92, led the team to victory against Winnipeg. And then the nail biter against Hamilton in Winnipeg in 1998 with Jeff Garcia. How crazy was it to be alongside those guys who you knew had had NFL experience and then later on went back to the NFL and still did great things. What, how did you like reflect on that after your career? Like, what was it like going through the moment or wow, Doug Flute is my teammate or Jeff Garcia is my teammate. He went to play in the NFL later on and he did all the, like that's, that, that just must've been so crazy. Well, in, in a lot of ways, you, you don't really think about it when, when you're going through it. I mean, Doug, Doug was unique because Doug as a Heisman trophy winner, you know, was so famous for the, the hail Mary when he was at Boston college and, and was such a big deal when he came out and signed with the United States football league for, for a whack of money. And of course there were a lot of stories about him and, and the NFL and the, his struggle even to, to kind of get attention from the NFL the first time around, because he, he was a guy who didn't fit the prototype. And um, you know, so because Doug had such a big reputation was so well known that um, with him where as much as we were all teammates playing on the same team, you, you felt a little bit like you were, you know, you were part of this celebrity's entourage basically when, when playing with Doug, um, you know, with Jeff, Jeff hadn't been to the NFL yet. You know that he was a great CFL quarterback, but he was, he was just your teammate at the time. You know, he didn't necessarily come with the, the history that, uh, that Doug did specifically, but, you know, I, I look at um, the, the quarterbacks that we had most particularly in Calgary. And it's amazing to think that you go from, from Doug Flutie, who is then succeeded by Jeff Garcia, both those guys move on to the national football league and become pro bowlers. But even when, when Jeff Garcia was there, um, you know, the number two guy behind Jeff Garcia for most of those years was Dave Dickinson, who is now a Canadian football hall of famer. The number three guy on that 98 team was Henry Burris, who's going into the hall of fame. And so you, you kind of think about the, the quarterback room 
that we had at the time. Um, even the next year, 99, when Jeff left to go to San Francisco and Dave took over as a starter, Henry moved up to, to be the number two guy. Partway through the year, Henry got injured. And so we, we brought in this quarterback. He was a guy who had been a bit of a, a journeyman in the, the NFL, hadn't played a lot down there, had bounced around with a number of different organizations. It was Mike McCoy who just stayed for one year and then had an opportunity to, to get involved in coaching, he had an opportunity to go back to the NFL as a quality control coach because some people he had been around over the years recognized that this is a guy that has sort of a coach's mind. And, and Mike, of course, has gone on to become a successful um, offensive coordinator, was a very good offensive coordinator with Denver for a number of years, uh, spent a little bit of time as the head coach of, of the Chargers. And so to, to sort of think of this string of guys and, and combinations of all of these guys being in the same meeting room at the same time, is uh, that that's the thing that really amazes me. And how how the CFL kind of fosters these connections with guys that go on to have great success. I find that the league can be underrated in that aspect because people often forget a little bit where some of these coaches came from or, or how intelligent they really were. On a previous episode that I recorded with Milt Siegel, we talked about the 2007 Winnipeg Blue Bombers quarterback locker room, right? Like you think about who is in that meeting room for the QBs, right? Kevin Glenn, CFL journeyman, like the ultimate CFL journeyman. You think about Ryan Dinwiddie, super intelligent minded quarterback, coached Calgary with, with uh, quarterbacks, now has an opportunity to be a head coach in Toronto. And then Cliff Kingsbury, who now all the youngsters would know because of him leading Kyler Murray and being at Texas Tech and with now being in the NFL again with Kyler Murray. And then can't forget about the person who was finally called up, Zach Taylor. Now, listen, you know, the Cincinnati Bengals are definitely in a difficult situation. But the fact that even when they had to call up someone from the practice roster, that all four of those guys did something significant in professional football, to me, is, is super amazing and underrated and spoke to how well coached they were. And also what a great chemistry that that created for that locker room. Because when you have, like what Milt said was, when you have guys who are supporting Kevin Glenn thinking like a coach and they have that mindset ready, you know that you're built for success for a while. Now, obviously Winnipeg went through a lot of turnover in terms of the quarterback position after the departure of Kevin Glenn, but that at least established success that they had from Kahari Jones to Kevin Glenn was an amazing run for Winnipeg. And even with the way you just mentioned with Calgary, Mike McCoy and, and all these guys, Jeff Garcia, Dave Dickinson, David Dickinson ended up playing quarterback for BC, and now he's he's a Hall of Famer. He's a great head coach and was succeeded by John Huffnagle. John Huffnagle, I actually never knew this. So, John, if you ever listen to this, you know, pardon me for not knowing before. But John had been in the NFL in the early 2000s. He had coached with the Jaguars. He had coached with the Patriots. Tom Brady in his early in his years. I was so blown away with knowing this when I, I found this out like last week. So you can see the continued success Calgary had after – Dave had retired. Have you ever had the opportunity to, to get to know John or get to, to ever talk football with him? Cause you're, a, you're an analyst guy. So you would know the X's and O's quite well. What is it like being able to, to pick the brain of someone that's had such a high level experience in the realm of coaching professional football? Yeah, it's amazing to think. And, and for me, as I said, the experience with John goes back to my rookie year in 1991 in Calgary, he was our, our offensive coordinator in Calgary uh, for me, 91, 92. And then I had him again as OC in 96 um, when I went back there after stops in, in Winnipeg and Toronto. And so, you know, it, historically, when you look at it for CFL fans watching the game now, they are so used to 
the five receiver offense as, as everybody's kind of base offense, five receivers, one back. Well, traditionally it, it always used to be four receivers, two backs in the backfield, you know, even going back further where one of those four receivers was, was a tight end rather than the two slots, but the game continued to, to open up. And the first team to use the five receiver offense was the Calgary Stampeders in the early 1990s. And that was John Huffnagel's brainchild. He was the guy who, who came up with that concept and, and developed it. I've always taken it a little bit personally as, as one of the guys being taken off the field for, uh, for the extra receiver that, uh, that he felt he needed to get rid of me for the, uh, the offense to work a little bit better. But the, the fact is John is a brilliant, a brilliant offensive mind, a brilliant football guy and has, has impacted the game in so many different ways. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the quarterbacks that he worked with over the course of his time in the national football league, all guys who had a lot of success during the, the time that John was there, in addition to the very successful quarterbacks that he worked with in the CFL. But I, I think when you look again, like going back a little further and you talk about um, some of those old Calgary quarterbacks, we talked about, uh, Doug Flutie and Jeff Garcia, guys who went on to become Pro Bowl quarterbacks in the National Football League. I, I truly think that those players who had those CFL roots in Calgary under John Huffnagel, um, those guys, I think, really changed the mindset of the National Football League, where the, the NFL used to be a league that was so much about the prototypical, you know, sort of 6'3 and taller pocket passer that it meant that guys like Doug and Jeff didn't really get looked at when they were, when they were coming out of college, they, they weren't seen as NFL quarterbacks. They didn't fit the mold. And yet after developing their talents in the Canadian football league and having a chance to go to the, the NFL, they proved themselves as dominant quarterbacks. And I think that those guys are a big part of the change in the NFL's mindset. You mentioned Kyler Murray earlier. Kyler Murray is a guy who a generation ago, doesn't even get looked at by the national football league as a quarterback. He's being asked to play wide receiver or being asked to play defensive back because he doesn't fit the quarterback mold. His size and skill set don't fit um, sort of the cookie cutter that, that used to exist um, at, at the time. But I think because you had guys like Doug and Jeff who were kind of a little more unorthodox scramblers, you know, maybe a little bit smaller um, that the success that those guys had, I think shifted shifted the mindset, opened the minds of NFL scouts to where you see a guy like Kyler Murray, a guy like Baker Mayfield being number one overall picks in the NFL draft when, as I said, a generation ago, they, they'd have been lucky to even get into a training camp as quarterbacks. And even someone like Russell Wilson, who for sure people have debated pound for pound could be seen as the best player in football. Now, maybe not necessarily because, you know, he's not as talented as Patrick Mahomes is at this moment or the trajectories or what have you, but for putting somebody in his frame at five foot 10, five foot 11, and for him to have the success that he's had, like the Kyler Murray's, like the Baker Mayfield's is astounding. And that's something that you mentioned. You wouldn't see those guys a generation ago, get a shot in the NFL. And it just goes to show how now the game is evolving to, to open up the passing game more and to open up for quarterbacks that are more mobile. The other day, watching the Thursday nighter, to be able to see how well Mariota played because he had that room to scramble and there wasn't really predictability with, with Oakland or with um, Vegas's offense. It was crazy that some guy who was a backup and people thought was going to be a designated wide receiver, or never going to get a chance 
was able to thrive against a Chargers defense that has been quite good this year, minus some of the lapses that they've had at the end of the game. So that opening up of the offense is is truly enjoyable to watch because people say, oh, this, I've had friends say to me, oh, the CFL is boring because, you know, they need a fourth down or I saw a score at halftime, a Hamilton Ottawa game was like 11 to four. Like, how could you have that score? I'm like, have you seen NFL games finish six to three, seven to three, three to zero. So don't necessarily just put all the blame on the CFL because, you know, they don't have all the, what what some people would say are some of the crazy highlights because the CFL is some crazy highlights of their own. And, and even to transition then into your role with having been an analyst for the CFL and TSN working alongside guys like Rod Black and, and Chris Cuthbert, you've been able to see up close some of the craziest plays that our generation has witnessed. So in your role as an analyst, what, when did that opportunity arise and was it something that you thought was going to be feasible for, for a long-term career because you mentioned wanting to go to teacher's college and then you got an opportunity. How did that come up? Yeah, it's, it's been a funny road. And I, you know, I look at the the career that I have, have had in broadcasting. And I think if you talk to probably anybody that I, I went to high school with, they never would have imagined that I would be talking on, on national television because I was always kind of pegged as a, as a quiet, shy guy in, uh, in high school. I, you know, I, other than around my friends, um, you know, my closest friends, I didn't, didn't necessarily say a lot, didn't, didn't joke around a lot. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's interesting, I guess, that I have ended up making a living um, talking, but uh, in, in terms of the path for me, um, as I was getting to the, the end of my career, so again, 2002 was my last year. So I guess it would have been 2001. Um, Grey Cup was in Montreal. That was my first year in Hamilton. I had gone there after spending most of my career in Calgary. And in Hamilton, we ended up losing to Winnipeg that year in the East Final. So after the, you know, the East Final, um, I was at home. Grey Cup was was in Montreal. So it's about, for me in Mississauga, Ontario, it's about a four and a half hour drive. And so with a bunch of buddies from university, we decided, you know what, let's, let's go to Montreal for for Grey Cup week to watch the game. A bunch of my buddies from Calgary were, were playing in the game, guys I had played with for a long time, and I wanted to, to go and support those guys and so on. And so we, you know, we went to the game and, um, you know, enjoyed a couple of a couple of nights of, of Grey Cup week as, as fans, which was certainly enjoyable. Um, after the game, we were, we were out in a bar with some members of the media and so on, and, and this group of guys that I had played with at Western. Well, one of the, the media guys that was there was Elliot Friedman, who most fans will know from from his work on Hockey Night in Canada, and Elliot had actually been the like the sports editor of our school paper when I was playing at Western, and so the group of guys that I was with, he knew us all. So Elliot ended up hanging out with us after the game, and he and I got into a conversation about the game, and he said to me at the end of the conversation, he was working for the Score Television Network at that point as uh, as their lead reporter. And um, said to me after the game, you know, if if you're not playing next year or if you you guys aren't in the playoffs, you should come and work for us in, at the score as our playoff analyst. Well, sure enough, I, I ended up playing one more year and it was not not a fun year in Hamilton. We finished seven and 11 and uh, and just missed the playoffs. And so looking to, to recoup some of the the playoff bonus money that I was going to be missing out on. 
um, I put in a call to, to Elliot and got hooked up with the folks at the score. And so 2002, I went for the, the three weeks of the playoffs and a couple times a week went and, and did some studio work with them as, um, as their analyst during the playoffs and uh, reprised that role again when I was retired the next year, 2003, but went back and did the same, same gig for them again uh, during CFL playoffs. And that evolved into a job with the score where I was their, their CFL analyst. I was doing these segments called the score on CFL where I kind of talked about different things about the league um, you know, kind of whatever I wanted to talk about. And that also accompanied um, being the analyst on their, their Canadian university broadcasts or U sports broadcasts. They used to do nationally broadcast OUA games at that time. We did a game of the week. So that was my, my first foray uh, into the booth was, was during that time. Um, you know, eventually we, we also added doing a, a weekly Canadian football league talk show, and so on. And so my, my role there just grew. And then 2008, when uh, TSN took over exclusive broadcasting rights to the, the CFO, I was hired by TSN and have been there since. So it's interesting how, you know, the score has kind of helped people with, with really picking it up in terms of the opportunities to talk about Canadian football or to work in Canadian football, because now that it's just Sportsnet 360, there were a lot of great people that, that many sports fans out there would know now, like Tim McAuliffe and Sizzixero and, and sorry, I'm I'm losing again. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned starting out at the score and, and how the opportunity grew and eventually when TSM acquired the exclusive rights in 08 that you were able to, to then pivot to working for them and that it's usually not just a straight shot all the way to the top to work for a place like TSN. And so the score has had a lot of great figures that have gone on to now work for Sportsnet because 360 is what used to be the score and TSN has acquired some people that used to work for the score. Sid Sixero, Tim McAuliffe, Christian Jack, you know, James Strauman, uh, the whole crew, there was a lot of great people and I'm, I'm missing some names right now. Like, you know, yourself was there. You worked with Tim calling uh, CIS games is what I guess it would have been called at the time. So was it, was it strange then what now that, or I guess now that you had the opportunity to do it full time and, and when you, when you look back on it, do you think that it worked out for the best in the end, considering you'd, you'd been so prepared to be a teacher and then life kind of threw a curveball and you, and you went a different path, but you still stayed in football. So I'm sure it must, it's, it's been very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. It, it certainly has been. And you know, the, I mean, one of the interesting things with the score is the, the way that the timing worked out was I was actually, I was actually in teacher's college when I started working at the score and, and was teaching high school as well, halftime during the time I was there. So, you know, I, I had days where I would be, you know, I would teach a couple of classes and then the way my schedule worked out teaching was sometimes um, my prep period would fall right after lunch. So it'd be like this double long period. I had days where during that double long period, I was zooming from suburban Mississauga to the score studios in downtown Toronto and going and recording segments for shows or, you know, times during my prep period when I was on conference calls with, um, with U sports coaches um, preparing for, for game broadcasts that weekend. And, and things like that. So it was, uh, it was an interesting juggling act at the start, um, you know, kind of combining the two careers, the, you know, but the score provided me a great opportunity and was 
um, you know, basically come up with a schedule that worked around my, my teaching commitments and initially around my, my teacher's college commitments. So, you know, so, I mean, that was something for, for me that worked out very well. And, and as you said, for, for a number of people, obviously the, the chance to kind of get some experience, develop our skills, learn our, our craft at the score. Um, you know, I mean, Winnipeg's own Sarah Orleski was, was one of my coworkers at the score. And we actually both moved to, to TSN in the same year in 2008. And, you know, the other little tidbit for you, I guess, would be the the last game that I worked for the score was actually the 2007 Vanier Cup. And I think you know what team won that. I, I do absolutely know that the Manitoba Bisons and the Bombers almost did the double dip. But unfortunately right. for James uh, James Johnson and Ryan Dinwiddie, that uh, was not to be. But it's it's so crazy how how one thing leads to another in the world of sports media, you know, like you, you know, Sarah Lesky and she's from Winnipeg, you know, all these people that were, were local talents, right? Like they started from the ground up and now we're doing nationally, you know, uh, nationally syndicated shows and broadcasting and sideline reporting, all sorts of great things. And, and then the jump from the score to TSN with some of the names that you got to work with, you know, working with another legendary Winnipegger and Rod Black, and then having worked alongside Chris Cuthbert and, and, and even just in our conversation today, I, I always think back to your calls on some of the the crazy plays that I've watched, like the the Ryan Smith catch, like you know, yeah. shoving the football right in his hip, and, <laughs> and what that would must, must have been like. Why? Yeah, the velcro. It was a vel- velcro almost, like watching that. So, w- what have been the most enjoyable parts about now working with TSN and? covering the CFL because it's a league that has given you so much with having won two great cops with two great quarterbacks, met so many amazing people, been, been to so many teams and we're still able to just enjoy a well-rounded career. How enjoyable is it now to be able to just live in the neutrality of enjoying the game without having to worry about rivalries or, you know, button heads with guys or really just, you know, doing what fullbacks do, right? Be big and strong and powerful. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know what? It's, um, it has been enjoyable. I, I have joked a lot over over the last many years that, um, you know, one of these days I'm going to have to get a real job because that's it doesn't feel like that, you know. And it, it, this is advice that I, I give to people all the time is um, find something that you enjoy doing and kind of find a way to to make it a career. And you you'll never feel like you you have to work for a living. You you know you enjoy every day that you do. Um, you know, for me, I, I even look at stuff in the off season. Um, as a fan of sports, one of the things that I love most is the draft. I love the the process by which teams are built, by which teams are put together, kind of management philosophies and and things like that. And so, um, you know, doing the research, doing the prep work for the draft is is something that that I absolutely love. I I, I genuinely enjoy it. It doesn't feel like a job. And so I've um, I've been very very, very fortunate in that way. And, you know, I mean, in terms of the the time at TSN in particular, um, you know, I am, I'm thankful for, especially the guys that I get to work with on, on a weekly basis that, that are kind of our, our true, our crew that, that travel together, that, that work together regularly that, um, you know, I mean, it is, it is very much um, our work family. People see, Rod Black and I, of course, on on TV all the time, but, you know, don't really know that, I mean, we have, you know, a producer and a director and uh, ISO directors and stats guys that are, that are usually the same guys that are with us, um, 
through the season as well. And that there's uh, you know, there's a closeness and a bond and I have a, a great appreciation for those guys and um, the, the level of enjoyment that they bring to going to work for me. And it's interesting you mentioned that because the other day when I was watching the Thursday Nighter, they were talking about the whole crew. Joe Bach was listing him and Troy and Aaron Andrews and Christina and also um, Mike Pereira was, is a part, you know, is a part of the the broadcast because they have like the rules analysts in, in the NFL. And so it is just it is just more than the person that's standing next to you or the person that's sitting beside you in the booth, because there's so much that goes into the production. And that's why I found it's interesting when I've met people that are the, the man or the woman behind the the video or behind the television, uh, having made connections with people who run social media accounts with different teams, or organizations. It's like, wow, you're kind of working behind the scenes or a bit of a, I guess they're unsung heroes in a way because you don't see their face and you don't hear their voice, but they are an equal part of making an amazing production and making sure that you guys have everything you need to be able to, to produce an amazing show and broadcast the game and make it super enjoyable for the fans. So in work that you've done as an analyst, what are some of the greatest games that you've had the opportunity to, to work on, to work at and to be able to analyze and, and how did it, how did it feel looking back to say that, wow, I was a part of that game and I was analyzing this as it happened while fans were probably losing their minds. Yeah. It's funny to think looking back because it's, it's not always, um, not always necessarily the, the best games for me, at least that, uh, that are the things that I remember or the, you know, sort of the, the great comeback or things like that, but it's almost at times can be um, moments and things like that. For example, I, I think back to, especially 2008, that um, the first game that I did, first game that I worked for TSN was um, was Hamilton playing against Montreal. And, you know, looking back, that was Mark Tressman's first game as a Canadian Football League coach. And so in preparing for that game, that was the first time that, that I met Mark Tressman. And, you know, I remember being very impressed with, with his level of preparation and his humility as a guy who had been around the National Football League and had been around big time NCAA football and so on, the, the level of respect that he had for, for the Canadian Football League, that's, that's something that has always stuck with me from, from my first meeting with him. Um, I look at a guy like Darian Durant, who went on to become a huge star in the, the CFL. I remember doing a game Vancouver against Saskatchewan, also that 2008 season. And um, Marcus Crandall was, was Saskatchewan's starting quarterback and got injured. And the feeling was that Giles was there to be the number two guy and Darian Durant was supposed to be the number three guy. But the, the coach at the time um, for, for Saskatchewan decided that Darian Durant was a better fit to go in in this situation because he was a little more calm, a little more composed. And so Darian Durant went into the game and that was sort of the, the beginning for, for Darian Durant going on to become a, a great Canadian football league quarterback. And, you know, he was kind of this unknown who had been around on the practice roster without seeing the field for, for a couple of years. And, and all of a sudden, you know, is on the, on the scene. And so being there for what was his first game. So, you know, again, I guess it's, it's not even so much um, the necessarily the, the actual games that are the things that stand out to me. But when you look back at them and, and things that are almost 
you know, almost historic moments uh, or milestone moments for, for certain players or coaches or whatever it is um, in the Canadian football league. Those are, those are some of the things that really stick out for me. I didn't actually know that about Durant. I knew that he played for Saskatchewan, that his start was around the late two thousands because, you know, people remember the Oh nine great cup, the 13th man, but I didn't actually know the, the prelude to that was him being a third string guy behind Steven Giles, who had went yeah. to Winnipeg the year after in 2010. I remember that. I remember Giles playing for Winnipeg then. And, and those moments can be very interesting meeting with coaches, getting to know them. Mark Tressman, a guy who uh, from a story I'd been told by a former player of his, Brian Ridgeway, who had coached me in Vancouver Island. He talked about, okay, he's like, yeah, he's like, Coach Trustman would be very even-tempered. You know, he'd be like, okay, guys, we're going to be doing this, 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 this in this amount of time. And we're going to take, it's going to take 236 minutes and, and we're going to get it all done. And that's it. And it was just like super prepared and meticulous, but you can see the results uh, as a, uh, speak for themselves in terms of his preparation, in terms of the success he did have with Montreal and being able to go back to the NFL, because you're right. He was such a prepared and well-respected coach at that time, but he paid his respects back to the CFL by ensuring that he didn't take it lightly because, Oh, well now we're in Canada or now the competition is this or that. No, he still treated it because it is professional football like it should have been. And you can see in the success that he had with Montreal that again, it showed in, in the, in the wins that they had, the great cups, the consistency. People talk about being 15 and three and how that can be daunting when you think about the pressure to win the great cup with the Stampeders in 2016, having not achieved that feat. But in 2009, the Alouettes were on the ropes despite being the 15 and three heavyweight favorites going into that game against the Riders. Now, mind you, they still pulled it out. And that resilience that Trestman must have injected at least somewhat into their team at halftime going to the fourth quarter down 16 and that speaks to his character and that speaks to the the history and the context that matters within how successful these coaches are how how these players careers come to grow and come to be because it's so easy to just show up and wow Darren Durant's great but do you know where he came from or or this player is is amazing or having watched let's say Andrew Harris in his first year in 2009 did you or 2010 did you really know where it was going to go but then when you see that evolution, I think that can be more impactful sometimes than maybe just one crazy play, like you had said. So it's interesting to, t- to, to talk about that concept because there are many games, I think, that we let overshadow the, the longevity of a person's career, right? Like it, I remember the first great cup that I ever watched and remembered was 2009, 13th man who were all involved in that great cup, right? Saskatchewan being, you know, the losing team and Paul Apolise being a part of the coaching staff and a devastating loss. But then what happens four years later in the great cup at home, winning all these players that had the, the feeling of losing and letting it sting inside them, motivated them to find that success and overcome and, and triumph this in in spite of the fact that their team had been so good and gotten so close but weren't able to to complete it so that gradual evolution of success i think is is a great point you bring up and it is super important to understand in the fabric of the league and why certain games mean so much because there's so much that led up to it you know yeah yeah no there's there's no question about that that um you know i mean it, it takes me on a, a different road and a different thought just thinking about some of the the conversations over the years, um, 
for us, part of the, the preparation for games is we do what what's called our, our sit down interviews. So sometimes when you see the, you know, kind of the, the cutaway interviews or the, mm-hmm. you get clips with players during games, usually we've, we've done those the day before games. And so you're, you know, it's kind of our, our crew of a, a handful of people, typically producer and play by play guy and the, and the analyst um, and a cameraman in a room with the, you know, the players and coaches will, will come in one at a time. And, um, you know, it's, it's funny sometimes some of the, the direction that conversations will take, whether, whether on camera or, or off camera, or even just impressions of players from, from the first time meeting them. Like again, another one of those guys that I think of in terms of, um, you know, kind of a, a milestone. I remember the first time that Mike Riley was starting a game in the, the league with the, the BC lions yep. and, you know, the, the Mike Riley that fans have, have come to know over the years is one of the faces of this league. I can tell you from the first, first time I ever met Mike Riley, he has been the exact same guy. And, and one of those guys where, you know, you, you have times in, in doing interviews and you've probably experienced the, the same thing already yourself where some people you talk to and you feel like they're, they're maybe giving cliched answers or canned answers, or they're giving you what they think you, you want them to say. Yeah. And there are other guys who just immediately come across as, as very genuine and, and very real. And um, yeah, Mike Riley for me is, is one of those that stands out that, you know, you sort of have a conversation, you know, some of it on camera, some of it off camera, some of it is, is quite honestly, like just casual conversation and, and people getting to know each other. And you know, Mike is one where I can say he he walked out of the room and all of us in the room kind of turn and and look at each other and go, you know, what a great guy. Like what a what a genuine guy. And and there have been a number of others over the years, but Mike for me is an example of, of a guy who was, you know, again, a backup quarterback that that not a lot of people knew that has gone on to become this star and is and kind of what you see on TV is as this guy that his teammates would go through a brick wall for um, like that's very genuine Mike Riley. And it's interesting. You mentioned him specifically because I remember from the, the, the first time that I started watching the CFL, like Oh nine, it was the great cop. And then, and then I started following the bombers more closely. And despite them struggling, I still remember watching and remember remembering certain players who maybe weren't that big, but it was in 2000, 11 I think or 2012 when Mike Riley was the backup or the third string on BC and I was like and and I could be totally wrong on this or I could be misremembering but I think it was Rob Black who was calling that game and and they were talking about him being the emergency kicker or something like that and in yeah. warm-ups because they were talking about Paul McCallum like you know he was starting to get up there and Mike Riley was practicing kicking I was like what's like third string quarterback practicing kicking that's so weird and then all of a sudden as soon as he you know, left to, to, to take over in Edmonton. You're like, wow, like this guy can really do it. And this is crazy to see that someone that was once a third string, they could just be some random Yahoo that holds a clipboard for a few years. And then you never see him again, but his progression from that time that he spent in BC to then returning to BC is one of the, you mentioned, we're, we're talking about the, the, the longevity of success. That is one of the best stories that I've seen of someone being able to circle back to a place where they, where they started and his amazing relationship with Travis Lule, which to be honest, is one of the strongest bonds I've seen between two quarterbacks in recent years in the CFL. It's so fascinating to see how much of a genuine guy that he has, you know, has been, and still is 
in spite of the difficult situations he's been in, having won the Great Cup for Edmonton for their first time in 10 years since the one of the greatest Great Cups that we've ever seen in 2005 against the Owls that was in, in Vancouver. It was an amazing feat for Edmonton. It was really great to see all the storylines that lined up for, for their franchise and winning that one. And, and even though the team in BC, while he's been there, has struggled, he's still been so resilient and such a tough warrior for their team at quarterback because they have struggled on the offensive line and they haven't been able to click as an offense as much as they like, but he's still in there, still taking shots, still firing a bunch of dimes to Brian Burnham and, and uh, you know, uh, and to so many amazing guys that their, their receiving core is loaded with, uh, especially in, um, in a tough situation like BC has experienced over the last few years. But um, that, even like Bolivar Mitchell, like I remember being grade 10 and watching the great cop and him going into the game at the end. And now mind you, people would say, Oh, well, it's just the end and Toronto's letting up and it's all good. But the way he played and how crisp he seemed, I was like, wow, like when this guy gets his chance to start in the league, he's going to be really good because Kevin Glenn was that ultimate journeyman who was the, the, he was in place of a great Calgary team, but maybe wasn't, at the, the 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 height of his elite skill that he had once experienced, like when he was younger with Winnipeg, and and seeing this progression in the league shows that there is a lot of promise in the development that coaches provide for players, and it's not just uh well just we're just gonna keep recycling through first round picks and first overall picks till we get our guy because that's not really the case in the CFL with very few Canadian quarterbacks ever being taken. So, in terms of watching the the longevity in terms of the related to success of these players and related to some of the best stories that you've seen outside of Mike Riley, what are some of the other great names that you've seen really make progression in the league and, and make a statement on who they are as a player? Yeah. I mean, Bo, Bo Levi Mitchell is another one, perfect example. And, you know, as, as a Winnipegger, you may remember, I mean, that was another game where we had the opportunity to do a guy's first start where Bo was, he was the third string guy. He was, he was this young guy in in Calgary and they had had injuries at quarterback and so everybody knew that he was was going to be pretty good you know he he was one of those guys but hadn't played and you know I think he ended up being offensive player of the week that uh that week his first his first start in Winnipeg where he kind of went out and and lit him up over 300 yards and a few touchdown passes and and the the legend of Bo Levi Mitchell has has just grown from there so I mean, he's, he's certainly one of those guys. Um, Andrew Harris, the Winnipeg native, you, you mentioned his history going back to, to joining the BC Lions as, as a junior player. And so, you know, I, I had kind of been told a little bit about Andrew Harris as, as this junior player who was practicing with the Lions and who, you know, they felt was amazing and was, you know, was going to be a, a good CFL player. And they needed to try to find a way to get this guy on the field. They experimented with him as a kick returner. They experimented with him as, as a receiver because everybody recognized how good a player Andrew Harris was. And ultimately, you know, it was demonstrated that he should, he should just be the guy at his natural position of running back, that he was as good as any American player out there. And, um, you know, and to watch his career and the, the way that it has gone has been, um, has been as amazing as any. So, yeah, there have been there have been plenty of them over the years for sure. And with the success that Andrew Harris has had in coming back to Winnipeg, that's another story that really shows the full cycle of of success in this league and and almost like a LeBron James esque 
promise to his hometown to bring a title back to Winnipeg. And, and having been a Blue Bomber fan for many years and having seen them win the Grey Cup finally for the first time in my entire life, which is wild to think shows his tenacity and his value to the team in Winnipeg. And I know that analytics people will get super caught up and crazy with running backs and how they're very interchangeable, but there is that intangible factor about Andrew Harris and what he brings to Winnipeg with how important he is for leadership. You you think about obviously some of the X factors that came in Willie Jefferson. You think about Zach Kalaros coming in at the right place, right time, the importance of Jackson Jeff code on the D line, the strength of the O line and Stanley Bryant, but having Andrew Harris be kind of the centerpiece of that team and be one of the main storylines around Winnipeg seems to almost make them an indestructible force once they had slayed the dragon, so to speak, against the Stamps in the West semifinal this last year. To be quite honest, that has to be the craziest game I've ever seen in my entire life watching the CFL because I had never, and and this is a little bit of a, of a uh, fact of the day, but so since 2001, the Bombers and I'm sure that you probably even actually maybe knew this, but like the Bombers have won only a few games in Calgary. They won in 2014 in the season's end. And I believe it was also 2017. They, they won in Calgary, but those games you could say were kind of meaningless because one, they're already out of the playoffs. And number two, they'd already secured the playoff position. So since 2001, the Bombers had never won a meaningful game in McMahon stadium. And that's a long, long, long time. So for them to have gone in, and beat Calgary the way they did, which you could argue that was Boliva Mitchell's worst game of his career. Not to, you know, not a knock against him. He's just goes to show how amazing he is. And for them to have done it in such convincing fashion was to me one of the most remarkable things that I've ever seen in terms of just an absolute stunner. There's so many storylines like that in the league with teams that haven't won in a certain stadium in X number of years. But Winnipeg's win in Calgary was probably the most shocking I've ever seen in my life. Well, and, and not just the, the outcome of the game, but, but obviously, I mean, the, the Zach Kalaros story at the end of the, the 2019 season is, you know, I think one of the great, I don't even want to call it a, a comeback because I, you know, I, I feel like that's almost a, a disrespect to Zach, but I mean, in a, in a way, a guy that, you know, a lot of people had, had given up on, right. The, that Zach Kalaros was this, this injury risk or liability that you couldn't take a, a chance on. But, you know, I mean, Zach proved that he remains one of the elite quarterbacks in, in the Canadian football league, given the opportunity to, to be on the field and play. And I thought that Paul LaPolice did a terrific job of, you know, of putting Zach in a position to, to be successful and, and do his thing and, and go to work in, you know, in a very short time, right. You're not talking about a guy who has had, an off season or even a training camp to learn an offensive system. This is a guy joining a team at the end of the season and, and having to pick it up in a hurry before being, being thrown on the field. And, um, you know, again, like I, I have often said in the Canadian football league, you cannot win a gray cup without having MOP caliber performance from your quarterback through the season. And Zach, very much performed at, at that level. And it was uh, considering that it was a season largely lost due to injury for him um, and an absolutely amazing performance and, you know, and a great story for, for a great guy. Again, I, I keep going back to this, but I mean, Zach is another one. I, I remember meeting 
before he made his first start as a, as a Toronto Argonaut. And, uh, you know, has, is a guy who is, has always been an absolute pleasure to deal with. And his, his competitiveness is something that, uh, that's evident anytime you talk to Zach. And I think that, um, that that's something that, that certainly showed in the, the Bombers playoff run. You talk about learning a playbook on, on short notice. It, it almost seemed that like, you know, Paul Apolis should be given, you know, a, a, an extra special award for offensive coordinator of the year or something along those lines, because to get your quarterback in tune with an offense that is not Mickey mouse to run by any means. And for you to do it on such short notice and, and to drop everything and ensure that he can run the offense that on a team that was hoping to be a contender earlier in the year, and for him to pull out brilliant performance after brilliant performance. And we're not talking, you don't have to throw three touchdowns on 450 yards, but the game against Saskatchewan, I was fortunate enough to have been there with a friend and watching that game in real life, you could see just fearlessness in his style of play. They didn't run the ball till I think the sixth or seventh play that game. And the deep shot they took right away to Dembski that was caught, but then it caught call back for offside. And then they went back again and attacked on Darvin Adams' side on the left, on the left sideline, that showed to me that he was there to play. And even though he took a shot off that play, he still got up and he still soldiered on, despite many of the uh, the hits or not not illegal hits, but some of the hits and bangs that he would have taken during that game, and even during the Great Cup, didn't get sacked at all. Was able to dump it off. Was able to to put himself in position to not get hurt and also for, to allow the team to succeed. It's super impressive. And so seeing those storylines and seeing guys that have that professional rapport and are competitive, find success is amazing. And in all the three guys that we listed or four and Andrew Harris, Bolivar Mitchell, Mike Riley, and Zach Laros, they all are a part of super meaningful great cup wins for all their franchises, which is not expect or which is not a surprise at this point because they've done so well. Yeah. And you know, I mean, simply put, I would say that, um, you you don't win without having great people you know i mean everyone will talk all the time about about great players but um you know but to having great people is is an important part of success and and those are those are certainly guys who fit the mold absolutely now Dwayne, we're getting towards the end of our time here today so i want to ask you another question to wrap up our episode and so with having been around the CFL for so many years and so many players you've worked alongside, media personalities and everything, there's just, it's so difficult to even think of just one thing that would stick out for you. But in terms of the work, in terms of the work that you did starting out in media, what is the craziest game that you were a part of while you were calling CIS football? This oddly enough is, is actually an easy one for me. And, you know, it it was a game in which, you know, I I, probably the quote that people would remember from the game is I even referred to it as it happened as the best game ever. And it was the 2011 Vanier cup. Um, Laval, mighty Laval Rougeur playing against McMaster university. McMaster looking for their first Vanier Cup and Laval, a team that, that, you know, it's not an exaggeration to suggest that Laval basically wins the Vanier Cup every other year. Just a, a complete juggernaut that has, you know, Glenn Constantin, their head coach, has done a phenomenal job. And I, I think as a guy who is responsible for, with what he's done at Laval, has raised the level of Canadian university football 
across the board. But this is this is a game where Laval comes in as as the favorite, as a heavy favorite, and uh, McMaster goes out. And I, you know, I don't even remember exactly the score, but I think it was like 28 nothing McMaster at halftime. Like McMaster with their quarterback, Kyle Quinlan, who is a guy who who should have played in the Canadian Football League. Um, Laval, or McMaster was just on fire, absolutely unstoppable in the first half. And if they're playing anybody other than Laval, this game would have been over at halftime, except they're playing Laval. So in the second half, it's all Laval. And so Laval rolls, roars back and scores all the points in the second half and ties the game. And so the game then ends up, ends up going into to double overtime. Eventually Tyler Kropinia ends up hitting the, uh, the game winner, but it was like, it was, it was just nuts. Rod Black and I were, were calling the game and, you know, it was a week we were doing the Vanier cup game. Chris Cuthbert and Glenn Suter were, were going to be doing the Grey Cup game two days later on the Sunday. It was a Friday night Vanier Cup. And at one point in the booth, Rod and I look, looked at each other. And it's, you know, it's almost like the, the competition among broadcasters is sort of who gets the better game, right? Like you always want to call a good game and have an exciting game to work. And at one point during the game, Rod and I looked at each other and kind of said, there's no way those guys get a better game than this and it was it was absolutely phenomenal it was to me kind of a, a magnificent showpiece for canadian university football um just a, a great a great duel to watch you know i yeah like a very very unique game and again like any any different combination of teams and players and so on and um you know, I mean, this game could have been one-sided either way at, at any point, but it was just, uh, you know, two great champions going going toe-to-toe. And I like that you mentioned this game because that is the first ever CIS game I can ever remember watching because, and like the talks have been muttering around the CFL circles of combining the Grey Cup and the Vanya Cup and trying to, you know, parlay to the Canadian Bowl into it too with Junior. That to me, I thought that, the Canadian or that the, the Vanya cup and the great cup were always a match made in heaven for that reason, watching that amazing game. And to me, I didn't really know anything about university football at the time. I just knew, Oh, this team kind of looks like my high school. Cause they were maroon and the other team is really good. And apparently they've won a bunch. So who knows, but the way that the game was played and the call you, you guys made and how back and forth it went right down to the wire with, Kropinia having missed the game-winning field goal mm-hmm. in regulation yeah. and then going to double overtime and getting the second chance and having watched the, the there was a, I think a TSN or some video production they made about that being the best game ever. And it's still on YouTube. And, and, and then the next, the next day, while the great cut maybe wasn't as exciting, but it went down right to the wire, just like the game before. And to have that festival of Canadian football, exist within that one weekend alone i thought man i can't wait to see the vanier cup be held the day before the great cup next year but then you know it uh if i'm not mistaken was it actually it was held in toronto the next year too right like the vanier cup uh yeah it was because it ended up being a rematch same two teams ended up playing but um but laval won yeah so 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 that so then again we had great cup and vanier cup in the same weekend but then it just 
never revived. It only, it always seemed like it was just kind of a coincidence. And so that match made in heaven, I thought was one of the best displays of Canadian university football I'd ever seen because of the reasoning with how exciting the game was it being paired up with the great cup and everything considered in that should be a tradition going forward that I think the CFL and U sports could take an amazing advantage of because that really would help bolster the image of U sports in the country. And it would also help with boosting people to go to the great cup, knowing that they're going to get two great football games. Yeah. And it's something as you you alluded to has been, has been talked about making that the norm. And it's been talked about many times over the years of, of trying to do that with the games. Um, you know, it, it, I would say it doesn't necessarily work in every city in terms of um, availability of hotels and, and facilities and, and some of the things like that, that you need in order to, to make it happen. But I think as, as often as they can make it happen, um, you know, as, as something of a U sports guy, it's something that I didn't fully buy into initially because I sort of felt like knowing what Grey Cup week is like, you know, where the, the argument, one of the arguments in favor of doing it has always been that you have all of the football media in the country at one place at one time, that it would generate more attention for the Vanier Cup. And, you know, especially having worked on the media side and covering Grey Cups, but having the, the spot in my heart that I do for Canadian University football, my concern was that the Vanier Cup would risk getting lost in the shuffle, that it would be just another event during Grey Cup week that it would, you know, I mean, like people don't, all the sports writers that are in town don't write articles about the Grey Cup parade, for example, and and things like that. And so recognizing that, you know, those people are there to cover the Grey Cup. Are they really going to give the, the, the Vanier Cup to do? Is it going to be treated as an important event? But but when you look at um, the way it's gone with, with some of the games where the two have been have been packaged together. Um, you know, going back 2007 was was another one where they were in the same place, same weekend. Um, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of positives that uh, that can come out of it, and and with the the mentality that has been suggested of having it be all part of a uh, a week long festival of Canadian football, the best that there is. Um, you know, I think is is a positive. And there are obviously are counter arguments, like you mentioned, with the not wanting it to get lost in the wash. And you don't, you, you're right, you, you don't want it to, to fall to that fate, but still at least trying to find a way for there to be a union between the two so that there can be that promotion of, of Canadian football in terms of pro and amateur, I think would be a good thing that they can do, like you mentioned, as many times as they can would be amazing. But obviously, with how limited the Vanier Cup has been to happening in the West that does present a bit of a, a crossroads for the great cup lining up with it perfectly. Cause we, I don't, Manitoba has never hosted the Vanier cup. Saskatoon's hosted only a few times. So it would have to be something they would work out with the stadiums and the venues and practices and whatnot. But if they can make it happen, I think that would be the more the merrier as time goes on. But with that, Dwayne, I want to thank you so much for being on today's episode. It was a super Super, super amazing talk about Canadian football, about being in the media, and especially about understanding the depth with the storylines that follow players and coaches who have had amazing, amazing opportunities to work in the NFL, to be those genuine guys. It's been super, super fun. I'm so glad that you're able to be on today. Absolutely. My pleasure. And I hope we have the chance to do it again. Absolutely. Well, thank you again, everyone, so much for listening to today's episode with CFL on TSN analyst, Dwayne Ford. 
Tonight! Easy, oh. easy! In the kill, kill! Lane, Lane! Moves to the right, it goes directly to Clement. Clement reverses it. Nick Foles! It's a touchdown by Nick Foles! Let's go! Let's go! Everything today! Let's go, Rejump! Catch him and throw him! Let's go! Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Huddle Up. Make sure to follow on social media at Huddle Up Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Let's make sure to execute this week and I'll see you next time.